it's safe to say, I think, that David, um, David knew God better than we do. David probably prayed more than you and I uh, pray in a given, given day, given week. He wrote more psalms than we have. He's more pious than we are. He's a better person, probably, than we are. And yet David did all the evil that we talked about last week. And I mean, I went through kind of painstaking detail, didn't I, talking about that, that evil. Um, I mean, I was trying my best to, to say if, you know, the cross was, you know, big enough for that, then, you know, it gives us a tremendous amount of hope, doesn't it? Uh, David, we think that he, he was guilty of um, coercive rape of a woman 30 years younger than he was, Bathsheba, uh, at least by modern definitions of the word rape, uh, who was not just anybody. We said she was the granddaughter of one of David's most trusted advisors, Ahithophel, which probably meant that she grew up in the royal court. David knew her from an early age, knew her when she was a, a little girl, most likely. Uh, that adultery, murder of her husband, who also wasn't just you know any schmo, <laughs> It was one of David's mighty men, Uriah, a blood brother, a, a man who had risked his life for, for David's sake, uh, was, was, close, was as close as a blood brother. Um, cover up um, of the murder. And then it was not just one murder, but David was responsible for the death of several other soldiers. The man after God's own heart did this, which means the best person that you and I know, the best person we've ever met, the best person in the world, that person is capable of anything. Uh, Ray Cortez, he, he told to his church when he was preaching the passage, he said, look, if I fall into some kind of scandalous, heinous sin, he said, don't be shocked, uh, mourn it, be sad, but don't be shocked as though like that could never happen. Um, and he said, it's not as though anything bad is going on in my life right now, but don't be shocked. Um, part of the, the whole problem with humanity is that we, well, I'll give you an example. Remember back to World War II, the Allied leaders in FDR were hearing reports of horrific atrocities that were taking place in German prison camps. And what was FDR and the Allies' response to those reports? They didn't believe it. They did, they did not believe it initially. They could not, they would not believe that Germans would do this. After all, a large number of Americans at that time came from Germany. They were of Germanic origin. These were people just like us. These are blonde-haired, blue-eyed people. These are civilized and good people. This, this is civilization from which Bach and Mozart came. Treating other human beings like vermin, treating other human beings like cockroaches, it couldn't happen by good people. Um, maybe less civil, civilized people like the Turks and the Armenian genocide. Maybe they, you know, they might do that, but, but not the Germans because that would be saying... We could do this. And so in, even in the face of overwhelming evidence, the Allied leaders didn't believe that people were capable of that level of evil. But no, 
I mean, read your Bible. We are capable of anything. I mean, if, if David, a man is dedicated to God, could do this, then we are just as capable. And honestly, the moment that I or you start going down that road of, oh, I, I couldn't do that, whatever that is, whatever that is, uh, we've taken one step closer toward doing that. You know, in one of the takeaway, the warnings from David's story is our sinfulness is scary. Like our, our own sinfulness is really, it should frighten us. It's a warning to us. There's several other warnings that will show up in this passage. But we're going to read 1 Samuel 12, where God now confronts David with his sin and leads him to repentance in a very, I think, a very gracious and shrewd manner. And this is what we read. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, it drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. And David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as Yahweh lives, this, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave, you your master's, I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity Upon you, before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die, but because... By doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. The son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David and became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and he went into his house and he spent the nights lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with them. 
And on the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, well, the child was still living. We spoke to David, but he would not listen to us. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He, he may do something desperate. When David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves, and he realized that the child was dead. Is the child dead? He asked. Yes, they replied. He is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, he put on lotions and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and... Isn't that something? He went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. So he was fasting and he was praying. He was asking God for grace. And God said no. And it's very clear that David was not trying to use God. Because, I mean, if you're trying to use God and God says no to you, then you're, you're like, I'll take my ball and, and go play on my own. But no, he, he goes into the house of the Lord and worships. And then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. His servants asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now the child is dead. You get up and eat. And David answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and lay with her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. There's something quite artful about the way that Nathan confronts David. He does not begin with blanket condemnation. He does not burst into David's presence, liar, thundering, murderer. Instead, he comes to David and says, "Uh, O king, I have a a scenario, a situation that I need your your counsel on. Uh, It's a situation between a rich man and a poor man. And David, uh, he probably, you know, he's the king. He would have commonly determined judicial cases, it wasn't probably uncommon for someone to bring a case before him. And so, you know, David may even have understood this to be an actual case that he was being asked to give, you know, legal advice on. And Nathan continues, you know, there was a rich man with many lambs, with many sheep, and there was a poor man with only one. And I mean, that poor man and their family just loved that little lamb. Um, it, it was like a member of their family. It, it's, it ate at their table. It slept in, in his arms at night. And here's one of the genius things about the way um, that Nathan does this. What was David's occupation before he became king? I mean, he's a shepherd. I mean, he spent his time out in the fields with the flocks. He, he, knows, he knows existentially doesn't he? Like what it's like to connect with an animal and, and, and you know, build those ties. I mean, he, he probably nursed little lambs from, you know, the first moments of their lives. I mean, a, a wolf might have come in and killed a, a mother lamb and, you know, David nursed him from the beginning. And so what, it, what Nathan is doing is he's going right, he's going right to David's heart, you know, right at his heartbeat. 
continues, the rich man received a traveler and the rich man would have therefore been socially obligated to provide for this traveler. I mean, uh, in a Semitic culture, the the dictates of hospitality, that was one of the, the highest values in their culture. But this rich man doesn't want to bear the expense himself, so he takes the little lamb and he barbecues it. (laughs) Great David, King David, what should we do about this? And what is David's response? David blows a gasket. David goes nuclear. I mean, you can almost imagine spit flying from his lips. He takes like a vow statement. As surely as Yahweh lives... This man deserves to die. And, you know, spit is flying everywhere. Uh, Hebrew scholar, one of the great Hebrew scholars of the Old Testament, Robert Alter, has such a fascinating and revealing comment about this moment. You, you may realize this, but David wildly overreacts to sheep stealing. Like in the Bible, there is, there's no capital punishment for stealing a sheep. And, and Alter writes, and I'm kind of paraphrasing him, him here, but he, he writes... When someone feels the pangs of their own guilt, it can make them fastidiously self-righteous in other areas of life. Hmm. Because David knows in his own conscience he has done something incredibly wrong, he wants to be a champion of justice now. And so you know, he flares up with anger, this inordinate anger towards lamb stealing. It's kind of like, it's like a semi-conscious eruc- eruption of his own guilt. Now, I don't know about you. I've seen that in people before. Um, I've read that in op-ed pages in the newspaper before. I, I've even I've seen that in myself before. And that may be what's going on here. I don't know. I thought that was a fascinating comment. At some point, we don't know how long Nathan waits to kind of drop the hammer, drop the bomb, but he says. I mean, these are such famous, powerful words, aren't they? You are the man. And we can only wonder how, just how devastating that moment must have been for David. Uh, I mean, we know it from our own experience, don't we? Getting caught, (laughs) especially if it's a a 40-something or 50-something-year-old person getting caught, it's not like like a 10-year-old with their hand in the cookie jar when we make 40-something and 50-something mistakes, those are big mistakes. Getting caught is, is devastating. It can feel like God hates you, doesn't it? It's a devastating moment. Somebody accidentally receives from you the wrong text that was meant for someone else. Or somebody sees the webpage that you're surfing on that you totally should not be on. Um, Somebody finds out how you've been mishandling receipts. Uh, getting caught, it feels like the hatred of God when it's, of course, the love of God, but it doesn't feel that way. Nathan, the, Nathan was a prophet. He is a prophet of God delivering the word of God. Now, normally when a prophet comes to somebody, when a prophet is you know, speaking to the nation of Israel, what are the tones they use? Often blanket condemnation, Right? But the genius here is when, you know, the prophet of God comes to David, the liar, the adulterer, and murderer. And instead of immediately bursting into David's presence and saying, I know what you have done, because Nathan did know what he had done. 
um, he resorts to all of this subterfuge uh, and, and, and shadow and cloak and dagger. Why? Why does he do that? Now, some people suggest it's because he's being cautious. I mean, David had already killed once. Uh, Nathan, <laughs> he may be you know, prote- trying to protect himself here. Uh, David could kill again. He's being cautious. But as I suggested at the beginning of the sermon, I think that he's being gracious. He's showing to David the grace of God. Consider this. We should never denounce somebody in such a way as we set up that person for further failure. You know, it is so easy, isn't it? It is so easy to condemn somebody in such a way that you just immediately raise their, their defense mechanisms as, as high as, as they can go. Um, and there's, there's hardly any way that they'll repent. It, like there's, if, you can, if you condemn them in your confrontation, the de- defense mechanisms are so high. When there's any hope at all for persuasion, it seems to me that the best way, the way modeled here, God, God goes for conviction and conversion and not condemnation. As one author puts it uh, this way, it, it glorifies God for you to tell the truth about sin. And it glorifies God way more if the person you are telling the truth to repents. And if you confront a person in such a way that it is so offensive, it makes it almost impossible for the person to repent, uh, you're really not on God's side then. Uh, you're not on God's side. You're not a vehicle for God's grace then. It, do you know what I mean by that? I mean, have you ever done that or been on the receiving end of that? Kind of like, uh, I told him the truth. I gave it to him straight. He kicked me out. He didn't listen to me, but at least I told him the truth. Yeah, but you told him the truth in such a way that he could never accept it. And that's not, at least here, that's not how it's modeled. Uh, We talk about John 3.16, don't we? Rightly so. What's the very next verse after John 3.17? John 3.17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. And I think that Nathan is doing something like that. Um, And I think this is what good confrontation does. This is what good parables do. They intentionally try to go beyond, behind your defenses and right into your heart. So if we were to apply this then to our lives, a couple of questions for you. Is is there anybody whom you, you need to confront about their sin And you need to um, confront them in this way. Secondly, is there somebody whom you have confronted about their sin, but you did not confront them this way and you need to apologize? And thirdly, I think this is a really good question for community groups. One of the great benefits, as far as I'm concerned, in community groups is it gives us a place to tell each other our stories, um, to kind of give our personal testimonies, and the various facets of our Christian life. And so here's a question for those of you who are in a community group and uh, are bold. When you were doing wrong or had done great wrong and you didn't want to deal with it and you didn't want to talk to God about it and you didn't want to talk to other people that you needed to talk to about it, 
And God forced the issue by sending someone into your life to speak to you. Who was that person? What did they say? And how did they say it? And how did you respond? I really believe that, I mean, part of, you know, spiritual formation is telling stories like that and and learning from them. Agreed? So there is the, uh, the artful confrontation of Nathan. Moving on, Tiger Woods spent 218 straight weeks as world number one in golf. <laughs> I mean, the guy was, at his height, he was unstoppable. He was winning tournaments by such a large margin that they, they started to redesign courses, <laughs> golf courses and golf tournaments in order to cut back on his, the advantage he had over everybody else. And of course, all of that came to a screeching halt when he was arrested for the DUI and, um, and then all of his infidelities, they, they kept pouring out. And if you remember, I don't, know, I don't know exactly when it was, but he held a press conference after it all come, came to the surface. And here's what he said at his press conference, quote, I thought that I could get away with whatever I wanted to. I felt that I had worked hard my entire life and deserved to enjoy all the, all the temptations around me. I felt I was entitled, and, and thanks to money and fame, I didn't have to go far to find them. And I was wrong, and I was foolish. You know, I think Tiger's story and, and David's story is, is a warning to all of us, especially to those of us who are in positions of power. Because, um, well, I mean... Power, what absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's the reason we have a demarcated, divided form of government. Um, but you, you know, if you get power, part, a lot of this sin is a power imbalance, isn't it? It's a man who is in power who then ends up, I mean, he's the rich man. And he has the power to steal from the poor man. And he, and he does. And, and he steals from Uriah and he steals from Bathsheba. Um, but I mean, we have so many stories, don't we, of, of politicians using their power you know, for infidelities and pastoral infidelities and all of these people in power, especially people in the upper echelons of power, um, they're very susceptible to this, aren't they? And I think one of the reasons, you know, to get to the top, you, gotta sac- you almost have to sell your soul. I mean, you almost have to sell your soul to get, you know, the... You, you sacrifice so much, you basically have no life of your own. I mean, do you think Tiger Woods have, has a life of his own? I mean, do you think he had a 16-year-old? But did he have a normal 16-year-old life? No. Uh, they sacrifice everything. And then when they get to the top, they are the targets of constant criticism and opposition. They have targets on their backs. And I think... Because the per- person gives so much and suffers so much, seeds of self-pity then tend to grow up in the heart, deep inside them. Uh, voices in their heads which say, nobody knows what I have to put up with. Nobody knows the sacrifices I have made. Nobody understands. They're right, aren't they? Like nobody really, none of, none of us could understand what it, it was like to be Tiger Woods. Um, And it's in those moments when the self-pity begins to kind of flourish inside of them 
that an opportunity for embezzlement comes or an opportunity for an affair comes or an opportunity to walk out on the king's palace and look out over all the other houses. And, when, and, and the person in power says, well, I deserve this. All the sacrifices I've, I've made, what I've been through for all these people, you know, it's finally my time to take care of my needs. I deserve this. And I think it's very interesting how God responds to these echoes of self-pity in David's life. In verse 7, if you'll look there with me, here's what God says. The, word, the, the Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives in your arms. You know, I raised you up from the shepherd's Life, I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you, I would have given you everything. In other words, David, you weren't deprived. <laughs> I gave you, like all of life is gift. All of everything you have, it, it is, it's gift. You were not deprived. And yet your heart was not satisfied with that. And you wanted more. Remember Woody Allen? Woody Allen he ended up having an affair with the daughter of one of the women that he was either married to or dating at the time. And you remember Woody Allen's response to that? He said, well, the heart wants what the heart wants. I mean, at least he was being honest. It's true. The heart wants what the heart wants. Um, and, uh, you know, that's what God God comes to him and, and Maybe that was the hardest part for David to hear. Like, I, I took you from a shepherd boy and I gave you everything. And everything still wasn't enough for you. I mean, God could say the same. He probably does say the same thing to us, right? <laughs> um, so here's the, all right, the most frightening part of both chapters is what follows next. God forgives David's guilt. The guilt of David's sin is washed away. The consequences of David's sin. No. Justice, the consequences of his sin, he gets all of it. Um, And you know, what we oftentimes do is we conflate the forgiveness of guilt with the um, dismissal of consequences and the and. And that's not true. Like you can, you can, what, remember the guy recently, uh, his brother was shot by off-duty Texas police officer in his own apartment. And at the trial, he comes up afterwards and he hugs the woman and, and he says, I, I forgive you. And you can do that. You can hug the person who has victimized you and say, I forgive you. And at the same time, believe that there are, you should spend a long time in prison for that. Because those are the consequences of justice. And David, his guilt wiped away. His consequences full bore. That's what happens. Very interestingly, so you look at the law. Exodus chapter 22. Is a, there are various and sundry laws about theft. And you know in the Bible, normally the way theft is dealt with is you have to pay restitution. So if you steal something, you still... One enchilada, you got to pay back with two enchiladas. 
Well, in Exodus 22, there's a specific provision for sheep stealing, of all things. And it says that if you steal another man's sheep and you slaughter it for him, for yourself, then you have to pay back, not with two sheep, but with, with four. Which is the very thing that, you know, David almost cites the law in verse 6 there. You have to pay back fourfold, not twofold. And it's terrifying because that's what ends up happening to David. He doesn't lose one son. He doesn't lose two sons. He loses four sons. So this son dies, and I would suggest to you mysteriously, it's like this son dies in David's place. And then the next son, um, Amnon, is murdered by Absalom. And then Absalom dies in battle in his coup d'etat attempt. And then later in David's, when he's very old, Adonijah tries also to wrest the kingdom and Adonijah dies. He loses four sons. He pays back uh, four sheep. No, I mean, truly the rest of the David story is is so immensely tragic. And what becomes very clear is that even though God forgave him of his sin and restored him to a certain degree to his place as the king in the kingdom, nevertheless, David is never, he is is never the same man again. Like he he is a shadow of his former self and his family is just, you know, Shelton's going to preach about it next week. It's his relationship to his kids and every, it is shattered. It's shattered. Uh, yeah, what, else, what happens? Um, the list includes adultery, murder, incest, sexual har- harassment, sexual abuse, rape. He refuses to speak to one of his sons for two years. He refuses to speak to another of his sons for five years. One of his sons steals his, his, his throne, sleeps with his other wives, um, there's vicious infighting over the family inheritance. You know what we do? This is what we, we all do this. We all do this. We, in moments of sin, we say, it's only my sin. It only affects me. It only affects me. It, we compartmentalize our sin and say, it's a private thing. And we compartmentalize our sin in the privacy of our own lives. And the reason why that never works is because it's a lie of modernity. Modernity says that human beings can be detached individuals. But God never made any human being a detached individual. Every human is woven into all of these different social connections. So if you, you know, introduce a great deal of poison in one spot, it does not stay in that one spot. It always spreads. And so what ends up happening, the rest of the story, is David's sons end up doing all the things that David did, but basically on steroids. The poison spreads throughout the whole rest of the family. Uh, And, ah, it's tragic. You've seen that tragedy, haven't you? Um, Maybe you've you've experienced it in your home life, um, family of origin stuff. You may have been responsible for it. It's, it's frightening. It's a warning to us all. Uh, is it only an Old Testament thing? Is this just like how God operated? That was then, this is now. 
No, we read in the book of Galatians, chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. After Paul has done a wonderful job of unpacking the beauties of the gospel. And of course, that's what you have to do first. Unpack all the beauties of the gospel. But at the very end of that letter, he gives a warning to a church. The church at Galatia. I mean, just a church like us. He says, brothers and sisters, please do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. A man reaps what a man sows. A man reaps what a man sows. The one who sows to please the flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to please the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Um, but that's how, he, that's how he speaks to Christians, to people like us. And so yes, though David it remains a hero of the faith, He's definitely a warning to us not to entertain sin in our lives, but, but to zealously kill it by the power of the Spirit, lest we fall prey to it. And, and to, to stomp it out early in our lives. I mean, think about it. What is easier to eradicate, an acorn or a full-grown oak tree? You've got to kill it early. <clears throat> well, let's conclude with verses 24 and 25. Because these are words of hope. I don't want to leave you (laughs) with anything less than hope. These are wonderful words of hope. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her, and he lay with her. He made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah, which means the Lord loves and delights in him. Now, David had many wives, not supposed to do that, but he did. And he had many, many marriages and many children. Of all the marriages and of all the children, do you realize that this is the one through whom the Messiah would come? You know, Bathsheba gets highlighted in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. She's like called out. This is the one, this is the messianic seed, the one through whom the Christ will come. Through, through Bathsheba, a, a, an exploited and wounded woman, and through David, who murdered in order to have this marriage. And it just, it boggles the mind, isn't it? That God would take like such a dumpster fire, we used that earlier in the sermon series, a dumpster fire, you know, charred ashes and ruin, and from that would come Messiah. God brings Jesus out of that, um, which is great news for us because no matter how, how horrible our own sin gets, I mean, he promises that he will work good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so God takes this poor woman through this whole horrible affair and makes her the great, great, great grandmother of Jesus, the bearer of salvation. Um, and so that's what I want to leave you with. You know, chapters 11 and 12 are, are very bleak, but God brings not only good out of it, but he brings wonderful out of it. Um, you know, a common idea is that there's grace for people who only blow it a little bit, but, but don't really blow it big. And, you know, if you blow it big or you blow it repeatedly, then, you know, that's bad karma um, and you're doomed. But God wants you to see that Jesus Christ, the king, the true king of Israel, is like no other king on earth. You know, he comes from a line of wicked sinners. He will give his very life for those same people. 
Um, He comes from a family tree that is full of twisted and broken branches and smoldering wreckages from wildfires and from the ashes of those ruin, of that ruin will rise in the hope of the world. And it does. Amen.